Sam, if there's one thing I've said on this podcast many times before, it's that I love audiobooks. They let me bring my stories with me anywhere I go, and I've listened to audiobooks while driving, cooking, working out, traveling, and even recently, kind of weirdly, well, at the dentist. (laughs) Our sponsor, Audible, can help bring your books with you wherever you go. Right now, our U.S. listeners can get a 30-day free trial of Audible, the destination for audiobooks and podcasts, when they go to audibletrial.com forward slash fanbookspod. On Audible, you can download and listen to thousands of audiobooks, including one that I myself narrated and catch up on all of your reading today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash fanbookspod. And to make it even easier, that link is in the show description. Happy listening! This is the Fantastic Books Podcast. The fantasy and sci-fi book review podcast for fantasy fanatics, book nerds, and lovers of lore and stories. Covering some of the most loved fantasy series as well as brand new novels. With your hosts, Anna and Sam. Let's see what we're reading this week. Welcome back, fantastic listeners. This is Sam. And Anna. And this week, we are back to covering Mistborn, The Final Empire, chapters 26 and 27. What did you say the other day? You missed it? I did! (laughs) I'm all about the bad puns. It's been a little while since we've had any episodes covering Mistborn because we have also been covering .exe with author Robin Jeffrey every single week joining us on the episode. So definitely give that a listen as well. It was a little bit out of our typical realm of the books we cover because it is sci-fi and murder mystery together, but we've been having an awesome time doing that and covering that book with her. You can find a link to that book in the show notes and get your own copy and follow along with us. Just a reminder to do that because our mini series that we post are some of our favorite parts of the podcast where we do get to talk with the authors. Yes, so try and find yourself a copy of Robin's book and follow along with us as we uncover the sci-fi mystery that is .exe. (laughs) One thing we'd like to go over is our calendar schedule for the rest of the summer. Yep, we have weekly episodes coming out for the rest of August covering some Mistborn and some .exe, and you can find the whole schedule on our Facebook and Instagram pages. I've been trying to keep posting those on a monthly basis. But just one thing to note, there will be no episode coming out September 7th. We're going to be on vacation, so we just aren't going to have time to get one out for you all. But there are plenty of episodes coming out between now and then. And in the meantime, listen, enjoy, and please feel free to like, subscribe, and give us some feedback. We love hearing from you, fantastic listeners. It helps the podcast grow, and we just love engaging with our reading community. Yep, so check us out at fantasticbookspod.com where you can find all of our social media and links to Spotify and iTunes where you can rate and review the podcast and you can also send us a message through there. But I think that's it for announcements and I am ready to dive back into Mistborn because it's been, as we said, a little bit of a time since we covered it. Oh yeah, and chapters 26 and 27 have some crazy developments I can't wait to dissect with you. They actually begin part four of the book, Dancers in a Sea of Mist. Yes. Chapter 26. Our blurb at the beginning of the chapter reads, I am growing so very tired. And Brandon Sanderson said in his annotations that this is one of his favorite blurbs in the whole book. 
Really? Yeah, I think it's actually pretty interesting that it's so short and so quick. But I think there's a lot to unpack here because is it Elendi becoming physically exhausted and tired? Is Rashik doing something to weaken him? Is he growing tired of the travel? Is he growing tired of the burden of saving the world? Is there something going on with the mist and the ghost in the mist that's making him tired? We're not sure. So I think it's quite cryptic and I really like it. Yeah, it definitely gives you pause for consideration. For sure. With chapter 26 opening up, Vin and Kelsier are back from their cross-country trek to the battlefield, and Vin is recovering in Clubs' shop. Yeah, it took them a couple of weeks to get back, even though they were able to run there with their pewter skills in a day. Vin is still recovering from that. <laughs> it's called pewter dragging, but it's definitely manifesting in what seems like a hangover. Oh, for sure. <laughs> As Vin wakes up and grumpily, groggily makes her way down the stairs to the kitchen or the hangout room with the rest of the crew, I just love this scene of her being all grumbly, kind of grunting out a morning and immediately <laughs> requesting ale. Dachshund, forever being the voice of reason in the group, is flabbergasted by saying, it's not even noon. And Ham just chuckles saying, pewter drag, which Vin nods. There's a little bit of levity, despite how dire the situation among the crew is. Right. It's kind of funny, too, because it seems like Vin is, again, this is manifesting as a hangover for her. And then to request ale, I laughed when we read it and I was saying, oh, hair of the dog. Good job, Vin. Yeah. <laughs> Way to cure your hangover. But it's also interesting that Vin is comfortable enough to show up in front of the crew at this point, feeling weak and disheveled and taking drinks that she's not looking at herself yes, or making herself. She's showing a vulnerable side by appearing this way to them. I was just about to say that. <laughs> yeah, she's definitely grown comfortable with her newfound family, as I like to call it. Speaking of her newfound family, Ham is back. He had been with the garrison, so this is the first time we're seeing him since he ran off to fight against the army that Kelsier had created and gathered up. Unfortunately, from him, we learned that the garrison is out hunting down the rest of the army. The Luthadel garrison met up with the Valtru troops, and now they're just searching the countryside and seeking out all of the remaining alive rebels. So the army that Kelsier had put together is fairly squashed out at this point. Squashed, scattered, and on the run. And it's just such a debilitating blow to the morale of the crew. They obviously feel terrible because they spent all this time training and gathering soldiers for them all to be wiped out. And how do you not feel like the entire plan is just gone? Like, how do you move on from this? Again, the power of the Lord Ruler's army and the Lord Ruler himself is just so overwhelming how do you continue to have the energy to withstand this and keep pushing forward to fight against him well in a couple of pages they get reason to keep going but yes. for now everyone is at the pit of despair as it were they feel like because Eden is dead and Eden is the one who hired them they don't have reason to continue with the job again like you said the army is completely destroyed so they've wasted a lot of resources developing that and then having it be crushed pretty quickly and then they just feel like there's no no point in continuing until Kelsier shows up. 
Kelsier, despite everything that's going on, has a very jovial attitude. He's very chipper. Yes. He's like, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? And everyone's just very perplexed because, for lack of a better term, shit's hit the fan. How do they move on from this? I like the difference between Kelsier and Breeze in this moment. Breeze is showing up with a level of solemnity and reason and confronts Kelsier saying, like, how can you not care that all these people that we picked and trained and knew personally are dead? You keep pushing, saying you want wealth, want to keep building your ego. You're doing all this stuff, but it's about becoming a legend. It's not about the plan anymore. Like, Kelsier, what are you doing So I like that Breeze is finally calling him out. They've been grumbling and mumbling behind his back or poking at Kelsier a little bit here and there. But this is the first time someone has confronted him to his face saying, what the hell are you doing? But unfortunately, they don't get a chance to expand this conversation any further because Spook comes in and there is a gathering in the Fountain Square. They all put two and two together very quickly A gathering of everybody in the Fountain Square is not something to be excited about. The only reason they are all gathered up and rounded and forced to go to the Fountain Square is for executions. One thing I didn't realize until Kelsier spells it out for us is that these are just random selected citizens. These aren't necessarily the family members of the soldiers. It's not the soldiers themselves. It's just horrible executions to send a message that the Lord Ruler is in control He can do whatever he wants to the Ska and that they are his playthings. And anyone who's not picked is forced to go watch Ska and Noble. Yeah. So it's not even like the nobility are exempt from this. Everybody has to go. Mandatory attendance. And one thing that is pretty surprising is how many people are in Luthadel. Even Vin says she's seen lots of people before, big crowds. She's lived in cities her whole life. But this is the most people she has ever seen before. And I think that's actually a really important detail to show how many people the Lord Ruler has power over. It's not just one man over a couple thousand. It's tens of thousands of people just in this city, and he owns the whole world. It's just such an awesome display of power. Exactly. And I think this is a great world-building technique that Brandon Sanderson has done that The streets are so packed and filled that there's people also on rooftops and just wedged into every little spot. And they're packed in. This also, I think, really helps us realize how dense the population is towards the end of the book when the house war breaks out and the revolution begins and just the overwhelming force of just the ska population turning. Yeah, because I think in a lot of fantasy books... It's more medieval style, so we think the population is a lot smaller, but this is almost like industrial level populations. So it'd be like if we had riots and rebellions in major cities nowadays. It's not a couple hundred people here and there. No, it's an overwhelming force. In addition to all the ska in attendance, we have all the major nobility houses up front. The Obligators and eight Steel Inquisitors in attendance. And among those Steel Inquisitors and Obligators, Vin sees her father. So this is the first time that she's able to show him to the rest of the crew. Kelsey recognizes him. It's this man called Tividian, who is the Lord Prelin, 
which is somebody who's ranked even higher than the Inquisitors. He's the leader of the whole ministry. He's like the Lord Ruler's right-hand man. So I don't know if his power as an obligator has anything to do with Vin being a particularly powerful Alamancer, because I'm assuming he would have to be a pretty powerful Alamancer as well to get that high in the ministry. And I know you might not be able to tell me why Vin is so powerful, because I know you've read the whole series at this point, but I'm just throwing ideas out here. Let's just say it's not immediately due to generational blood. Okay. Impacts her power. (laughs) Ooh, interesting. Okay, I will hold on to that as I continue my way through the series. It's definitely a contribution, but is not the sole reason. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm, Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Don't spoil anything. Oh, no, no. The journey is worth it. <laughs> so as they are all gathering up, all of a sudden they get this feeling of oppression. It's described as a numbness, like a massive blanket pressing down on them. It steals Vin's resolve and her, any kind of hope she has. Who is it? The Lord Ruler. I love that he is just an oppressive force that just makes you feel horrendous. It's very similar to Dementors in Harry Potter. Yeah, which are modeled on the feeling of depression, Mm. actually. And one thing that Vin is noticing is that even though they are supposed to be in a copper cloud, they're supposed to be protected, they can still feel, or she can still feel, the Lord Ruler's soothing and this horrible feeling that he's giving her. And she brings it up to Kelsier later and he brushes it off. So I think Vin is just more sensitive and more powerful than the rest of them. But I also think it is important to note that it could also be the Lord Ruler is so, so powerful. He might be able to pierce it and they might also not be able to pick up on what he's doing to them because they've lived under this feeling of oppression for so long, for their whole lives. Yeah, it's definitely a combination of things without giving anything away. The Lord Ruler emanates so much power. Vin clearly is very adept at piercing copper clouds as shown later in this book yep that is later explored in the other book so i won't give anything away with that but it's a big hint that vin immediately has such a volatile reaction to the lord ruler's eminence exactly and breeze can see that people are getting soothed even though he can't currently feel it which I think is a little bit confusing. I would assume that Vin would be able to resist where everyone else would be able to feel it because she's so powerful. So it's interesting that it's the inverse. But Breeze says, wow, even at my best, I could only soothe a couple of hundred people. And the Lord Ruler is soothing tens of thousands of people in the crowd because as the carriage, this big, black, ominous carriage carrying the Lord Ruler rolls through the crowd... Breeze can see the effects that it's having on the people as Lord Ruler soothes them as they go by. As the Lord Ruler arrives in the Fountain Square, the executions begin. And again, these are just random ska people that are being executed as a... It's like a political tactic and a scare tactic. Yeah, to remind everyone who's in control. Due to how many executions there are, they're being done four at a time in waves. Brandon Sanderson used this amount to show just how much of the population is being executed. Right, it's a lot of people. As executions go on, all their blood from their beheadings from the Inquisitors' axes fill this fountain and it starts spraying up in geysers of blood. 
And it's such a grotesque and dark imagery that really stays in your mind. And the interesting detail of this was a last minute addition that Brandon Sanderson thought of. The fountains. Yeah, where I thought that would be such a cornerstone theme during this. I think it's really smart to put them in just in terms of logistics, too, because I don't know if these are drinking fountains, but it ruins the water that people can then use. But also there's so many ska packed into the city right now that people in the back won't be able to see the executions. But if there's a fountain of red shooting up into the sky, everybody can see that. Yeah, it's just such a display of force. There's just something so grotesquely ostentatious about using someone's blood to power a fountain, something usually for decoration and beauty. There's just something so inherently wrong by that. It's just really creative and cryptic. It's really dark. And it's one thing I can picture a fountain squirting out red. But if I really stop and pause and think about how thick and viscous. It just it's like a visceral reaction. Like yeah. it it really turns your stomach if you give it a couple of seconds to think about. It's not just like, oh, red water, like colored water in the fountain. It's blood of women and children and innocent people. And that's not something that we would ever, ever see in our world. So it's just so bold of the Lord Ruler to do this and not even care. Yeah, this is truly one of those moments in the book where you're like, this is a dystopia. This is a ruined world. With such intense imagery is where Kelsier makes such an awesome speech. This is one of my favorite points in the book of all time. Kelsier finally calls the whole crew out and says, this is what we're fighting against. It isn't about money. I selected all of you to be part of my crew because you are people of conscience and people of morals. And integrity. Integrity. Thank you. And you're either in or you're out now. Like, I will give you the option to leave. There will be no repercussion. But if you're in this, you follow my rule. We are here to take down the Lord Ruler to end this, to make a better place to live. And it just, it gets me stoked when I read it. I think it's awesome. This is a moment of, you know, our cards are down, but it's time to rise up, get big, and keep pushing on. And I love that Kelsier says it's time to stop the charade. Like the entire book up until now has been about this heist, but that's not actually what Kelsier has been putting his energies towards. He's been really planning an overthrow of the final empire, and they all knew it deep, deep down. And he's kind of saying, like, we need to stop pretending that this is about getting ATM. The ATM is going to be part of it if we can get our hands on it. But that's not why I'm here. We all need to redirect our energies into what we're actually fighting. We're not just pulling off a difficult scheme where, you know, it's not a sneaky heist. Starting a revolution. Yeah. And I'm not stopping until the world is different and better. And I think in that moment we finally get to the heart of the matter of are you in this or are you not? And I love that with this, Kelsier also makes the declaration that if you continue to move forward with this plan with me, you will not question my authority. You may ask questions and raise concerns, but no more hitting conferences, speculating my motives and questioning my reasons. You be upfront and honest with me. Exactly. And I think that that's really important. It establishes Kelsier as their leader. He was before, but it was never stated out loud. It was more 
we're all members of the crew on equal footing and people were getting nervous about Kelsier's direction. But now if you stay, you're choosing Kelsier as your leader and you are following his vision. And his vision right now is actually really clever. He points out, hey, the city gates are a lot less staffed with guards because guess what? The garrison is gone. And that was the whole point of the army in their plan was to use the army to distract the garrison, to get the garrison to leave so that they could move on to securing the city. So they've technically accomplished what they need, just in a way that was not originally intended. Right. That and it paints the picture that these Ska soldiers' deaths weren't in vain, that they were able to follow through with their mission. And I think there's a a sense of solace and victory in that. Kelsier does mention that there are still some soldiers of the rebellion in the city. We can recruit more. We can use their sacrifice as a motivational force that this was a victory against a final empire and that we're getting one step closer to a world without the Lord Ruler. Especially because he brings up the fact that the garrisoners are mercenaries, so if they can steal the Lord Ruler's wealth or his ATM, they can then use his garrison against him. Right. So Kelsier is being very strategic. And one line that I really like that he says is, I wish to the forgotten gods that those boys hadn't died. Unfortunately, we can't change that now. We can only use the opening they gave us, which is exactly what you were saying. Yes, the army did die. Like most of our soldiers are dead, but don't just give up now. Don't let them die and that be the end of it. Right. Don't let their deaths mean nothing. Exactly. So I like that he uses this opening and this chance to push forward with their plan. And he's adapting and maneuvering very cleverly. And even here where during these executions, he points out, look at the nobility. These are our enemies. You call me callous and hard for wanting to slaughter all of them. He's like, look at them. They're not even paying attention. They look bored. Some of them are just joking around and making light of such a horrendous scene ahead of them. It's disgusting. As an aside, though, from Vin's perspective, we do see that Ellen looks very downcast and upset by the turn of events. So obviously these are generalizations, but not all the nobility are bad, clearly. Right. They're just part of a system that's broken, and most of them are unfortunately benefiting from that so they don't care that the ska are getting killed and they've been conditioned to think that the ska are lesser and unhuman compared to them but there are some in the nobility that give us a little bit of hope like ellen's sitting in amongst a group of people who all look sort of disgusted with what's going on yeah as the executions go on the scene fades out yep vin can see into the lord ruler's carriage and she's thinking to herself that is the enemy the man from the log book We have to defeat him or else everything else is moot. Chapter 27. The blurb at the beginning of this chapter is, in my opinion, so important to the entirety of the story. We have Elendi very concerned about Rorschach's hatred for him of being an outsider and a foreigner and how he wants to prove Rorschach wrong that he is capable and that he can prove himself to perform the task. In the blurb too, I didn't even notice this. I just had read the word piercings because Elendi says, I wear the piercings of the hero unjustly. I almost read that like I wear the trappings of the hero, but I think 
what it really means is like the piercings associated with Terrasmen and Ferukemi, the, the jewelry that they wear. So is Rashek being protective of that in terms of he doesn't want an outsider using something from their culture or is Elendi not actually a Ferru chemist? Lots to speculate. I think you know more than you could tell me. In this regard, I don't think we get an answer to that particular question throughout the trilogy. Oh, okay. But no spoilies. <laughs> That's fine. The actual chapter itself, the group is back at Clubs' shop. The executions had gone on for hours, so hundreds of people have been executed to just give a small rough estimate on that. Probably a lot more. And because of Kelsier's speech and what they have all witnessed in the square, everyone is recommitted to the plan. The garrison is gone, and Doxon says that their main focus now has to become the nobility and the house war. Yeah, everyone is doubling down on their efforts to organize, plan, and execute this overthrow of the Lord Ruler and his final empire. And the way they're going to do that is put financial strain on the great houses, so... Vin is tasked with learning more about Ellen and his family's house finances and getting more information at the balls. They need Dachshund and Breeze to go undercover and do some I don't misguiding know, <laughs> and rumor mongering and whatever that entails on their own. We don't actually ever see that on camera, I guess you can call it. Like we never see. Yeah, in the book, but I'm assuming that that's what they're doing for the rest of the time. While they're talking about this, Kelsier mentions to Ham that there are a handful of soldiers dispersed amongst the city, Ska, and that his responsibility now is to work heavily on recruitment and the groups that are dispersed throughout Luthadel. He is to tell them that they are the only Ska soldier contingency left. That way... They are keeping the secret hidden and won't get discovered by the nobility or the Luthadel guard. But the major important thing to take away from all this is that despite the fact that the rebellion army was mostly wiped out, they did complete their task in removing the Luthadel garrison in order to hunt down the remaining scattered forces of the army. And they're going to use that argument to help build up more troops and recruit more people, sort of twisting the story saying, no, the garrison was defeated. The army did exactly what we needed it to do. And then there were all the executions, which should help give a little bit of resolve to the people left in the city that they need to join Kelsier's fight. Right. Fan the flames of anger and make them realize that the Lord Ruler is unjustly killing their people and that they are making headway, that they are experiencing victories during this empire. It is. It's very clever how much they manipulate their own narrative to help not only Kelsier's image and his ideas about legend, like being a legend and everything, but also the way that they're twisting the rebellion to seem more successful than it might be on paper. Yeah, it's classic propaganda tactics, but in this example, it's really helping their cause, you know, overthrow an evil tyrant. And as we do see by the end, Kelsier does a lot of individual work developing a relationship between himself and the ska in the city and that's what ends up really fortifying their cause in the end and and once he dies all of those people then come out of the woodwork realize that they've all been getting trained and they've all been getting recruited and so it does really work for them in the end 
Yes, it's so impactful with Kelsier developing such a strong bond with the Scott people and really becoming this larger-than-life symbol that when he dies through his martyrdom, it just sparks the right flame to cause the rebellion and the revolution to take over through Luthadel. Yeah, I don't think it would have been successful had Kelsier not been the same level of charismatic, I guess you could say. All his points were in charisma. Like if Yidin remained this the leader of the rebellion throughout the whole book, it wouldn't have worked. No, it would have been like, ah, too bad, so sad. Right, or even Marsh. Like we see in this chapter how committed Marsh is to helping, but he's not a born leader. He's not got that charisma and that excitement that he can bring to the leadership that brings people together. He's organized and dedicated and committed, but I think only Kelsier could have gotten this job done the way he did. Yeah, it's really fortunate for everyone that despite his flaws, Kelsier just had such an impact on people. He's got the right combination of traits and everything, yeah. yeah. As they're going through all this replanning, Sazed shows up with a note from Marsh and he's in the city and they're going to meet with Marsh. Yep. Put down your bay wraps or as I like to call them, your hay wraps. (laughs) (laughs) Do you just mean like a hay wrapped in a tortilla? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I know in the books, the bay wraps are supposed to be like barley and like a tortilla. (laughs) And I know they have food, like regular food, obviously. (laughs) But since they talk about the vegetation always being this stocky, gross plants that are very withered, uh huh. I just, when they talk about the bay wraps, I imagine literally just hay in a tortilla. <laughs> That's not what they're eating. I know. The plants just don't grow as big as our plants. It's not like they don't have the same kinds of plants. Well, they don't have flowers, but. Yeah. The nobility are eating real food. Yeah, it's true. They're not eating, like, gourmet hay. Ah, horse styles. <laughs> oh, all right. Back to what's going on in the story. Vin and Kelsier go to meet Marsh, and they're in this abandoned building across the way from where they're actually going to be meeting Marsh and staking it out to make sure that it's safe. Side note, I do like the colloquial names that Brandon Sanderson comes up with for places. So this slum neighborhood is called the Twists, which obviously in my mind is like just buildings built on top of one another and wedged in. So it's a twisting, turning, chaotic section of the city. But I like that there's small little place names tucked in that aren't like fantasy names. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, the imagery with it is very engaging. Like if he was like, this is... (laughs) Gluthadel. <laughs> Gluthadel. A suburb of Luthadel. <laughs> you know what where I mean? Like glue it, is made. <laughs> you know what I mean though? Yeah. It's not just a fantasy word he's tucked in for Or like downtown sake. or the suburb, yeah. Yeah, that's all. Creativity. It just feels very natural the yeah. way that um people move through the world. But they're waiting for Marsh. And as they're waiting, they finally start talking about the 11th medal and Vin confronts Kelsier and asks him if the 11th medal is real. And he says, well, yeah, I showed it to you. Obviously, it's real, like it's a real medal, but that's not what she's asking. I love that she calls him out and just says, are the legends real? Are you lying? Because it's something as a reader I know I've been thinking about for a while now. It's not in the forefront of the plot, this 11th medal stuff, and it's been so 
mixed up with Kelsier's persona of himself and these legends he's been pushing forward. So I had a lot of questions about it, and they're just getting to it now. So I am excited she's asked, like you said. He has built this up to be the linchpin of the plan that without the 11th medal, we won't be able to take down Lord Ruler. As the reader, you're just enamored with what does this do? What ability will it give you that you can throw over the sliver of infinity himself? But then we don't even find out because Kelsier says he doesn't know how to use it. And Vin's not comforted by this idea at all. Like you said, this is pivotal to the success of their plan. If it doesn't work or if Kelsier doesn't figure out how to make it work, they're not going to succeed no matter what they do. And it's so frustrating that Kelsier is vague. He says he founds legends that nobody else found. And we're left to decide whether or not to believe him the way that Vin is left unanswered as well. Right. Vin then questions that, is he hoping to find the answer within the logbook on the 11th medal? And this then deters the conversation into inquiring more about ferrochemy. Okay, I have to talk about this because we were listening on audiobook to review for this. And this would now be my third or fourth read of this chapter specifically. And I just read between the lines enough to make a theory that Allomancy is not mentioned in the logbook because there was no Allomancy at the time. I think, and you're smiling at me and I know that you have no poker face. So I'm onto <laughs> something. I know I am. Because I've stopped reading the second book because I was getting too confused reading the first and second book at the same time. So I have no idea if this is true or not. I, I feel like whatever happened at the Well of Ascension was the creation of Allomancy because the world then had mists. We know that Allomancy is associated with the mists. I'm throwing it out there. I know I'm going to find out if I'm right or wrong eventually. And I know a lot of listeners are probably out there laughing at me or (laughs) (laughs) feeling some kind of way. But that's, that's what I'm staking my claim on right now. To quote the great Brian Asher, (laughs) all will be revealed. (sighs) Okay, that's fair. You're on to something. I know I am. I know I am. I am impressed that it's so woven into the world building that it took me four reads to get to that point, though. Hey, clever writing. It wasn't like, oh, wow, weird. There is no Alamancy mentioned in the log book. I wonder why. You know, like some authors are pretty heavy handed with that. And it was just omitted. And the omission in my mind was because the log book was about his experiences and not necessarily, you know, if you're writing a log book, you're not going to write down things that you you take for granted as basic knowledge. End of theory. Well, (laughs) I think it's actually very astute of you. Thank you. I had never came up with that thought until I was presented knowledge later on on certain things all right well i'll i'll finish the trilogy eventually we have to finish covering it on the podcast first all in due time yep i just know i have good books to look forward to now Mm -hmm. after more speculation on ferrochemy we get a breakdown on the concepts and abilities are in greater detail from what sazed had originally told vin i think as a magic system I appreciate that ferrochemy, although it is internal and can be stockpiled, it's a very hard magic system with limitations and feels very conceptually sound and believable. 
Yeah, it's very easy to understand the basic concept of storing something in a metal that you can then pull on later. And it's all internal. You can't use a different ferrochemist's metals as your own. The power isn't drawn from the metal itself the way it is with allomancy. So I think that that's very straightforward. I like that it is sort of confusing to Kelsier because he says there are some abilities that you can change with ferrochemy that are a bit unexpected, like height. Height, weight, and age. And that was a nice little Easter egg tossed in there as far as, or a hint, I should say, of what the Lord Ruler ends up doing later on to prolong his immortality. Yeah, good point. I hadn't even noticed that. So I like that we're learning more about it as the book is going on. We didn't get a huge info dump at the beginning. And even in the annotations, Brandon Sanderson says he put this in here and he put stuff in about the ninth medal, which we're about to get to here for the first time. He just didn't have place to build them into the story earlier because he wanted you to have a really good grasp on how Alamancy worked before he got into the more complicated aspects of it. So I like that the magic system, there's more and more to learn as we go throughout the book. Yeah, there's always another secret. (laughs) I will say I did look up the ninth medal before we got to the scene when I read it first because it was driving me crazy that it had not been mentioned. Yeah, you were going nuts. Because it's just like everything's numbered. If they didn't have like, this is the first medal, this is the second medal, and then they've got eight and then ten and eleven... It was so obvious to me that nine was missing. Unfortunately, Vin only asked about it now, and she finds out that the ninth medal is gold. And that's when we start to get some clues or foreshadowing that the medals are not fully understood yet. Because Kelsier says that the last two medals, nine and ten, don't pair up the same way the earlier medals do as inverses of one another. As readers, we can read between the lines and figure out that there are undiscovered metals that would pair up correctly with 9 and 10. Yes, there's a lot more alloys out there. And as the trilogy progresses, we get confirmation on that. Yeah, Vin tries gold. It is very bizarre. It's a very unique internal experience where after burning the metal, You can see alternate versions of yourself if you had taken different life paths via choices you make. Sort of the inverse of ATM, where ATM can let you see into the future a little bit, and gold can let you see like an alternate past slash present. But Vin sees this version of herself and then her physical self. She can see them both at once. And you see the version of her if she hadn't met the crew and she sees how much she's changed it's like this really bitter withdrawn introverted girl who doesn't trust anyone and compared to how she is now feeling comfortable and easy with the crew she can see how different her life has turned out this alternate version that she sees is just so weathered and spiteful mistrusting and just bitter it's just such an intense experience because she'll reach out and she can touch herself, this alternate version. That's got to be confusing because then it leads you to believe that this isn't just a hallucination or a vision that, you know, this person's real. But because she only had such a small amount of the metal burning, this alternate version of Vin disappears and she's left feeling shocked and disturbed. 
It's interesting, too, because Kelsier says gold is really strange. Like, they're hallucinations to everyone else. He couldn't see Vin's other self, just she could see it. But no one really understands gold that much. And Kelsier says that its inverse is atium, but when she finally figures out the 11th medal, we realize that gold and the 11th medal are the inverses, not atium. And that's how she identifies the Lord Ruler as being none other than Rashek. Yeah. Oh, that was such a great reveal. I can't wait to talk about that. That That gave me chills. I had thought something was weird about it, but I hadn't been able to figure it out until the very moment. And then I think I like threw the book. Yeah. (laughs) Like we were so excited. It was just so simple and in front of us the whole time. Especially with the little blurbs. Yeah, because I kept thinking about it more as Alendi becoming corrupted and not just it's a different person. That hadn't really crossed my mind at all as a potential. I just couldn't figure out how he had gone from being a regular mortal person to this immortal, horrible being. Man, that reveal was great. So good. So awesome. Speaking of some other surprise reveals, Marsh shows up and he now has the ministry tattoos around his eyes, which Vin is shocked by. Obviously, if he's going to infiltrate the ministry, he had to do that. He is really, really in deep cover And Vin is really sad on his behalf. She says the tattoos are so distinctive. For the rest of his life, he'll either be an obligator or a fraud, depending on how his infiltration goes. It's just such a dedication and... Sacrifice. Yes. Marsh brushes it off, saying he didn't have much of a life before anyway. But that almost makes it sadder, because I think the life he wanted was with Mare, who got taken away once by Kelsier and a second time by death. Yeah, Marsh's human life is gone. And next time we see him, he's a steel inquisitor and his humanity is completely gone. I'm not sure what happens to Marsh as he spends more time as a steel inquisitor. I got through part of book two and I felt like he was losing himself or becoming different or strange. I don't really know. But he is helpful to the crew through the end of this book. And right now he's really, really helpful. He's found out about these places that are called soothing stations. Yes, they are all throughout Luthadel. And they are what's keeping the ska population in check and complacent. Because they're soothing their intense emotions of frustration, despair, and resentment towards the Lord Ruler. So they have the best soothers at these stations, and they are just soothing all day, every day. I think they also have tin eyes there to help them suss out any alamancers that might be quote-unquote half-breeds, any ska mistings. I think they also have... Uh, smokers. Smokers, yep. Yeah, so this is a well-thought-out scheme. It's very devious, and it does make sense because Kelsier noted that The ska population in Luthadel is extremely depressed compared to other places. And that's why it was so much more difficult for them to do their recruiting here. Like the cards are just stacked against them on every turn. This is critical information that Marsh is giving out. And he warns Kelsier and Vin, do not do anything stupid with this because he had just learned this. If it is executed poorly then it'll become obvious that Marsh is a mole and his whole infiltration of the steel ministry is going to just completely end him. 
Yeah, they've got to be really, really careful with what they do with this. I don't know if they end up getting the information from Marsh in time to make it essential to the plot. Because they they get the information from Marsh once he's a Steel Inquisitor, right? Well, he's on his way right now. They are taking a special interest in him, and he's rising through the upper ranks. They do have one other meeting where they're going to be getting the map. Oh, that's right. They do get the map. In the table leg? Yes, I remember the table leg. And then after that, they don't see him until it's revealed at the end of the book that he's a Steel Inquisitor. Which is interesting, too, because in this section... Kelsier and Marsh are talking about the Steel Inquisitors, and Marsh says, oh, well, they have all the allomantic powers, so I'm assuming that they have to be mistborn, not just misting. And he's going to try to find out more about them, but he knows that they can age and that they are not immortal. So this is a little sliver of hope. It shows that maybe they're not invincible and that they can be killed. But it also foreshadows that they're changed in some sort of irreversible and weird way. And when this happens to Marsh, it's even more scary because we don't really understand them that much. Not yet, at least. Okay, I don't understand them that much. No, I'm not going to get into it here, but... Whew! Some dark arts are performed. Ooh, okay. Well, I know the scene where Marsh gets turned is very gruesome, and I want to leave that to when it happens in the book. It's not explained in a lot of detail. In this book. Yeah, it's left very cryptic, which is cool. I do like how much of a world Brandon Sanderson can build and leave things unanswered, like all this stuff about the Ferrukemi that we got in this chapter and some of the stuff about the Steel Inquisitors. But it doesn't feel like I'm not getting the answers. By the end of the book, I still don't know the answers to those questions, but it doesn't feel like he's created unanswered things as a reader that I get frustrated by. But it leaves some avenues to expand his world so much more down the line. Yeah, they don't feel like plot holes. It just feels like another mystery to be solved. Right, like things that the characters aren't super focused on just yet, but they could be. Yeah, it's interesting. My experience with this book was... A very satisfying standalone novel. And then he expanded into a trilogy that was phenomenal. And as I'm reading Alloy of Law, the second Mistborn trilogy, he followed suit in that where the first book is presented as a standalone story and then expanded upon as well. Yeah, and he does write good standalone stories too. Like you and I both just read Warbreaker this year. And that's a standalone, and it felt fully developed, and it, he could, I guess, but write a second eventually if he wants to, but it's impressive as an author that he has the range to do both. Yeah, I absolutely loved Warbreaker, and I feel like at some point we should definitely cover that. Oh, I'd love to. This chapter ends a little bit similarly to the last one, and that they both fade out, as we said about the previous chapter, where we see Kelsier and Marsh saying goodbye to each other but it's not like a mushy goodbye it's just like a genuinely caring hey be careful vin is surprised because they do really care for each other and she's starting to understand their dynamic a lot better than she did before and then kelsier says they have to go because there's another ball coming up of course so she has to go get ready she's got another ball coming up in a few days and vin has to be there for her part two of her role in the group which is more gossiping 
back to work. <laughs> but that is the end of this episode. The next section of the book, the whole remainder of the book, is really down to everybody's recommitment to the plan. We see a lot of developments with the house war. We see a lot of developments with Kelsier and how he's interacting with the Ska. So I think we're going to have a lot of really exciting episodes coming up as we are approaching the final third of the book. Yes, there's a lot of priming, and then eventually we are rewarded with the great Sander Lanch. <laughs> he's always so good at it. Uh, I will never forget how excited and enthralled I felt when we were finishing the last like six chapters of this book and how we couldn't put it down. That was the first time in a long time that we stayed up really late reading. Yeah, it felt like being a kid again. It was so exciting. It really was. I think we stayed up way too late and regretted it the next day at work because we no were so regrets. tired. But once you got into that part of the book where like the action is mounting and everything's snowballing, you can't put it down. I'm very, very excited to relive that excitement and share that with you all as we dissect and uncover these chapters with you. And then I can finally finish reading the trilogy. Yes! (laughs) And you can stop having to keep it secret from me. Yes, yes, yes. So until next time, listeners, happy Happy reading. reading. Thanks, listeners. If you're looking for more, check us out at fantasticbookspod.com, where we have book reviews, reading list suggestions, merch, and you can even send us a message. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Fantastic Books Pod. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks. Thanks. Golden Rise Media. Thank you.